Hello, everyone. My name is Sherry Rice, and I'm CEO of Access to Healthcare Network. Welcome to our podcast, Access to Health. Our goal is to bring you informative speakers from the healthcare industry to give you information that can help you make your healthcare decisions. Today, we are talking about the opioid crisis. And my guest is Dr. Andy Pasternak, a local family practice physician and owner of Silver Sage Center for Family Medicine and Silver Sage Sports and Fitness Lab. Welcome, Dr. Pasternak. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you so much. I know this is a topic uh, we certainly can't go for very long without hearing about the uh, narcotics crisis that we have in our nation or the opioid crisis and seeing something about it. Um, what is the narcotic crisis? Well, the, nar- the narcotic, the prescription, well, let's really what we're talking about is prescription narcotics here. Um, and or prescription opioids. Um, and basically what's sort of happened in medicine is we're having a correction for some of the medical policies that we've had for years and years. Um, we had a period of time where we were, physicians were being, emph- being encouraged to be aggressive with opioid prescribing, uh, to try to get pain under 100% control um, and the medical communities finally sort of taken a look at this, and, and we we're finding that perhaps being 100% aggressive with treating pain using narcotics, uh, there's some real downsides to it. And so, and the biggest downsides being we're seeing a lot of overdose deaths, and we're also seeing uh, people becoming more dependent or or uh, having problems with starting out with prescription medications and going on to, to, to uh, illicit drugs. So the medical community is sort of making a big, big correction over the last couple of years with regards to prescription, prescription narcotics. So when we talk about spe- uh, prescription narcotics, what drugs are we talking about? So your prescription narcotics are typically medications, um, uh, medications like hydrocodone, oxycodone, uh, which go by Vicodin or Percocet or some of the basic ones. Um, when we get to stronger medications, we're talking about medications by the names of fentanyl um, is a commonly used one. And there's a number of others, but these are basically prescriptions that affect the opioid receptors in the brain to help control pain. I think there's very few people, at least my age, who haven't been given a prescription at one time for coding. That seemed like that was, it was sort of very common to be given codeine for a multitude of things. So now you're saying that now we're being much more judicious about it. Yeah, um, and I should, yeah, codeine is is in the opioid class. It's one of the less potent opioids, so we tend not to see uh, as many issues with abuse and and misuse of of codeine, but um, it's in that class, but we are getting more cautious in how we use that. And I have seen patients uh, who have, used codeine and, and essentially gotten addicted to codeine and had, had addictive behaviors due to codeine. So it's another one that we worry about. So let's, let's talk about pain control because that's, that's why people are prescribed by physicians the opioids. So what if not an opioid for pain control, what do we offer a, a patient? Well, I think we're getting better at looking at what medications actually work best. Opioids still have a big, big role when it comes to uh, pain, and especially with acute pain. Um, if someone's having surgery, uh, they're probably going to need some opioids to control their pain. 
Um, I think the biggest issues that we're looking at are there are other medications that we can use to help maybe reduce the amount of opioid they're getting um, or also making sure that we're not giving p people too many opioids. Um, you know, one of the biggest issues, and, I, and I've talked to a number of friends and patients, you know, patients would go in for a simple knee arthroscopy to have a meniscus cleaned up. And, you know, you would hear stories of them getting 120 Vicodin um, for a meniscus. You know, it's a painful surgery, but within a week, most people are back to normal. And they probably need maybe 20 or 30 Vicodin at most. So one of the things that we're trying to do in the medical community is really kind of clean that up because what we're finding is, yeah, if those medications aren't used post-operatively, they tend to sit around and, uh, and then bad things, they, they can sometimes end up in the wrong people's hands and bad things can happen. Well, where's the point where a physician realizes that their patient may be having a problem? That's a tough, tough question. Um, and especially there is a transition after surgery where you put someone on pain medications, it's appropriate, uh, but then down the line, three, four, five, six months, um, you're finding that person still needs to be on pain medications. And there is some data out there that, you know, for people with certain types of uh, orthopedic surgeries, um, their risk of going on to develop dependence on opioids is sometimes as high as 10%, uh, which is a pretty staggering number. So a lot of times it really requires some coordination between, say, with post-operative pain between the surgeons and the primary care physicians or the surgeons and the pain management physicians of, okay, at this point we think the post-operative pain is under control. What can we do to then get people off some of these pain medications? And again, you know, one of the things that we're seeing is the, the operative teams, the anesthesiologists, the, the surgeons are, are using other modalities to try to control pain. So if someone has surgery, they might do uh, a nerve block um, using a non-opioid medication to help control the pain, or there are some other non-narcotic pain medications that, that we can use to help control that. And what, what is a pain management clinic? What is, what is their role, and how do they work with a family practice physician? So pain management clinics, um, uh, there are physicians who are specifically trained in pain management. Um, they can come from a variety of backgrounds. A lot of times they're coming from an anesthesia background, um, but they can come from a, a, a number of other backgrounds, physical medicine, uh, even some of the primary care physicians will do it. Um, and a lot of times what the pain management physicians are looking at is, again, what other ways can we control pain? So sometimes that might involve um, injecting, uh, doing injections to help block if it's a specific nerve or if it's, if the pain's sort of in a regional area, they can do some things to help uh, kind of block the pain that way. Um, uh, sometimes there's some other procedures they can do to help. So it sort of depends on what's causing the pain, but a lot of times they can help um, uh, with some procedures and devices and things like that that can help with chronic pain so we can help pe keep people off opioids. So the statistics is that there are over 2 million people in America that have an opioid addiction. Uh, that's obviously at a very, very high level. And I know the federal government is giving grants and different other uh, monies out to try and help this. 
where do you make the decision between someone who's just a high user and somebody who's an addict? That's a that's a really tricky decision sometimes. Generally, what we find is there are there are a number of patients who have legitimate chronic pain, and there are some patients who do need to be on chronic narcotics. Um, and some of the things that we look at are um, are some of the addictive behaviors. Are these people using more pr- medications than prescribed? Um, are these people getting prescriptions from other providers? Are these people going to the emergency room frequently to get dish- additional prescriptions? Um, in Nevada, um, I do a lot with our state medical society, and, and over the last uh, two to three years, the the state has really looked at the opioid crisis and implemented a lot of new laws and, and regulations with with regards to uh, prescription narcotics. And so some of these laws are being really helpful at helping us identify patients who, um, you know, sort of separating the patients who are using their prescriptions, using them appropriately, keeping their pain under control versus someone who uh, they're using my prescription, but they're getting prescriptions from other doctors or using other uh, uh, street drugs um, to help control their pain. So um, that that's where I sort of make that distinction between someone who just has a chronic pain issue and needs the, the narcotics versus um, someone who's sort of escalating their medication use um, through either other prescription drugs or, or illicit drugs. Well, let's say that a patient of yours that uh, wanted more opioids and you were not willing to give them a prescription, could they go to an urgent care and perhaps get a prescription? And if they didn't say that you were their family practice, how would you ever know about that? So that's one of the things that the state is really, um, uh, one of the new laws with the state is for providers in Nevada, before you write for any controlled substance, narcotics, uh, benzodiazepines, things like Xanax or Valium, um, we are now essentially being required to check what we call a, a PMP report. Or it's, it's basically a report where we can look up the patient and we can see all the controlled prescriptions they've gotten from any pharmacies. Um, and, you know, in my primary care setting, I know most of my patients. Um, I've actually had very few instances, um, but when I do have new patients come in, it's an incredibly helpful tool. Um, we can look to see who all their providers, where they've been getting prescriptions. Uh, one thing that, again, we're really getting patients to focus or we're working with patients on is their prescriptions should be coming from one pharmacy. Um, when you see someone who's getting prescriptions from six, seven different pharmacies, that's a huge red flag. And when someone who's been a patient of yours, say a back pain, someone with chronic back pain, and you've given them prescriptions and they want more and then you give them uh, alternative for their pain and they come back and say that it hasn't helped. What is the next step for you with that person? Well, for me as a primary care physician, um, my next step is, you know, we, we do need to trust our patients. And, you know, the hard thing with pain is we don't have a test. Just, to, to, you know, if someone says I'm in 10 out of 10 pain, we don't have a lab test. We don't have an x-ray test to really validate that. We have to trust our patients. Um, but if someone's having that severe pain and the, you know, if we're using an opioid medication, um, sometimes we may want to increase it. Uh, 
if it's appropriate. You know, other times that may be the time that we say, okay, let's keep this pain medication going, but it is time for you to, let's get some additional testing. Let's get an MRI scan to see what, why this pain is that bad. Um, let's get you in to see the neurosurgeon or the orthopedic surgeon or the pain medicine specialist to see, are there, you know, does this need surgery at this point? Do we need to do any procedures? So, um, you know, that's when we see pain escalating like that, um, and I should preface this by saying due to non-cancer pain, um, it's treat, treatment of, ca- of cancer pain is a whole uh, separate issue, um, but sort of chronic musculoskeletal pain, that's where a lot of times it's a collaborative effort between the primary care physicians and the specialists. Do you, with marijuana being legal in the state of Nevada, do you ever tell a patient that perhaps they'd want to go to a dispensary and try something with THC? Um, that's a really interesting topic. Uh, and I don't think we have, I don't think we have a great answer on that. Um, I've actually been a little bit more open to patients using medical marijuana to treat their pain. Uh, there's some data out there that using medical marijuana may help to, may help patients reduce the amount of opioids they're using. Um, but then just last week, there was another study that came out. There was a new study that came out saying in states that have legalized medical marijuana, we're seeing more issues with opioids. So I don't think we have a great answer on that yet. Anecdotally, I mean, I do have some patients that have used medical marijuana, um, and we've been able to slowly wean them off. Um, you know, prior to marijuana being legal in the state, uh, I think a lot of providers when we, if we would do a urine drug test on someone who was on opioids, if they had marijuana in their system, that was sort of a uh, forbidden thing to do. Um, now that marijuana is legal, uh, it depends on the provider. And, and I've talked to a number of specialists, and I, there's a variety of opinions. I don't think there's any consensus on, on that. But again, anecdotally, I've had some patients use THC or CBD, and we've been able to wean them off a little bit. What about CBD oil? I, I'm probably going to do a podcast on that because, you know, I was in Bed Bath & bon- Beyond the other day, and there was something that said infused with CBD, and I'm like, wow. Yeah, the business you want to be in is growing hemp right now <laughs> yes. for the CBD oil. Yeah, I, I was talking with a, someone whose brother is a farmer and is going to make a lot of money off CBD oil. Um, again, the data is not really that great on it. Um, you know, uh, we have this weird issue right now where the states are legalizing THC and CBD. Um, but at a federal level, there's still we're still not really allowed to do research on the benefits or, or downsides to these, to these substances. So it's, it's a real... Uh, unfortunately, we're just going by anecdotal evidence right now. And again, I have a lot of patients. Um, CBD seems to be a really hot thing. It's getting put in more and more ointments and creams and um, people seem to be getting a benefit. And, you know, the way I look at it is, especially if it's a topical application um, and if they can rub a cream on and we're able to get them off their opioids a little bit, at this point, I think I'm okay with it, but we're going to keep an eye on the research for sure. So somebody has a opioid uh, addiction, and what what is the treatment for them 
once they have become an addict. Is methadone one of the treatments? Yeah, uh, so there's a couple of options. Uh, Methadone's one of the options. Uh, There's another medication called buprenorphine, um, which is, I always have a hard time saying that one. Um, But they're basically, the, the advantages of those of methadone and buprenorphine are they sort of work, I don't want to get too technical, but they basically sort of work like opioids, but they also sort of block some of the opioid receptors. Um, and so if someone has a true problem with addiction, um, if they're on opioids, a lot of times if they stop them abruptly, they will go through withdrawal. And having seen patients go through opioid withdrawal, it's, it's, it, it can be pretty, uh, it's pretty difficult. So a lot of times in those instances, you're getting more uh, some of the mental health providers, psychiatrists, addiction specialists involved uh, to kind of work with the patients on how do you still keep their pain? A lot of these people still have legitimate pain, uh, but that's where we might use a medication like buprenorphine or, uh, or methadone um, to help control their pain that might have a little less addictive potential. And is methadone a narcotic? Methadone is still, it's, it's, again, it's, uh, I, I would still consider it a nar- narcotic. Yeah. Um, again, it sort of works on the same receptors. Uh, buprenorphine's it's, it's almost in its own class, but again, we sort of c- consider it the same. Um, part of the issue with treating addiction, uh, especially with buprenorphine is we, there's a law essentially right now that for, for physicians who are treating patients with addiction with buprenorphine, they have to go through very specific training to use that medication. Uh, and they can also, they, they have to limit how many patients are actually treating uh, with that. So um, we need to get more more physicians involved with that. And, and I have to admit, as a primary care physician, it's something I need to, uh, to kind of look a little bit more of how I can improve know, it gets, get some continuing education to kind of expand in that area uh, because we need more people treating addiction in Nevada for sure. One of the articles that I read getting ready for the podcast was about methadone, and this particular um, editorial comment was that we aren't using methadone as much as we should, that we aren't making it as readily available and that it would have high impact uh, for the the opioid addict if we would use it and make it more available. Yeah, I, I, I think that there's a reluctance, especially amongst primary care providers. Um, I think a lot of primary care f- providers are comfortable treating pain. Um, we get used to using maybe three, four, five, six different medications. Um, when we get into the realm of treating more addiction, um, well, one of, yeah, one of the things that, that I think we're trying to get is the primary care physicians to realize they need to be treating addiction. They should be more comfortable with that um, because we don't have enough addiction specialists. And a lot of times uh, these patients doing something for them is better than doing nothing. Um, and so, yeah, I think considering more use of methadone and buprenorphine in, in primary care is, is one thing that I know the primary care f- workforce is looking at. Um, and in a lot of ways, those medications are safer. Um, you know, they have a little less uh, abuse potential, um, but it's it's really a matter of getting uh, some of the primary care docs, getting them some more education, and, and I'll put myself in that category of getting comfortable using those meds. Another article that I read talked about uh, physicians investigating a little bit more whether their patient has a 
uh, addictive personality, whether they tend to be an addictive type person and taking that into consideration before you give them the opioids. Yeah, so uh, I think that's a very helpful thing to do. Um, Again, uh, the state, um, our state medical society worked with our state legislature at putting some new laws together two years ago, and then we've made some some revisions revisions to that in the last legislative session. But part of the new regulations really require uh, you to do. Uh, there's some survey tools and some screening tools that you can do to look for uh, both addictive potential in patients, and then when people are on chronic uh, medications, we'll have them come in every 90 days and give them some additional survey tools. And we'll see some red flags, you know, and so you kind of go through the survey tools with patients. Uh, and if, you know, and there's certain things, you know, if, if they have a strong family history, if they've had issues, say, with alcohol in the past, um, you're going to want to be a little bit more careful in terms of prescribing. So here in Nevada, we've had a couple of bad apples, a couple of docs that uh, haven't quite followed the um, appropriate behavior with their prescribing of opioids. How does that impact such someone such as yourself, a family practice physician who's just trying to do the right thing? Well, yeah, it's it's incredibly disappointing uh, when those stories come out because um, I, I I I don't know why those physicians are doing those things. Um, you know, in some instances. I'd like to give them the benefit of the doubt. Um, some of the older physicians, again, we had this philosophy for a while of, you know, pain was a vital sign and, and we needed to be aggressive in terms of treating pain. Um, and so I think for some of the physicians, if I'm going to give them a benefit of the doubt, maybe they were trained that way and they were, you know, uh, following some of the practices from the 80s and 90s of, of being very aggressive with pain management. Um other times, I think it's unfortunate that they're doing it for financial gain or maybe some other gain, um, but it has a huge impact on us, and it, it makes our profession, frankly, look bad. And so that's why, as, again, our state medical societies wanted to work very closely uh, with our state legislature to try to figure out some solutions and, and really sort of eliminate those bad apples. So students in medical school now are, say, internships, residencies, there's a different philosophy. They are trained differently than, say, 20, 30 years ago? Oh, completely, yeah. Again, you know, this idea of uh, pain is a vital sign, which really came out of the VA hospital system, um, it has pretty much gone away. Um, and I think we're, that we're looking at, you know, yes, we need to treat pain. We need to believe our patients when they're having pain. But, um, you know, uh, I think for a lot of providers now, it's, okay, let's go through some steps of what other medications can we use short of opioids to try to treat pain. And, you know, and interestingly, there's some really good evidence that there is a lot of non-opioid medications that for certain conditions work just as well as opioids. Um, so, yeah, the, the training's uh, completely, completely different now. And what about pharmacies? There, is there a fail-safe there? If it, can a pharmacy say, I won't fill that prescription? Uh, that does happen. Um, you know, uh, in Nevada now, some of the pharmacies, uh, especially some of the, the big chain pharmacies have put in some policies where, um, I've had patients that I think they have legitimate pain. I've been treating them for years. We've had them on 
stable doses of their medications. And, and some of the pharmacies are now getting a little bit uh, sketchy about pres- per, uh, filling those prescriptions. So it really requires a lot of dialogue. Fortunately, the pharmacists I've dealt with have all been really good to work with. I think we all have the same goal, which is for patients with legitimate pain, we want to keep their pain under control. But we also want to make sure that the prescriptions are being used appropriately, that uh, patients aren't going to overdose on them or the pa- or the you know the patients not selling their prescriptions on the street or anything like that. So um, it when there's collaboration between phys- physicians and and pharmacists, uh, it it's, it's really beneficial. And I think fortunately, we've been seeing quite a bit of that in the last couple of years. So educate me if you would, Dr. Pasternak, is there a clearinghouse for all prescriptions? Can a, a pharmacy get on online somewhere and see that Mr. Smith has received numerous prescriptions for opioids from Walmart to CVS to Walgreens? Yeah. So again, there is, there is uh, this, this we, we abbreviate it, PDMP report, which I can't remember what it stands for off the top of my head. But basically, there is a state reporting system um, that for any controlled substance, again, narcotics, uh, benzodiazepines, um, they all get put into the centralized system. And um, the system's had a few glitches. It's better now than it's ever been. Um, But it's a very easy way for uh, hospitals, provider offices, and pharmacies to look to see what are patients are getting prescriptions um, and and that's really helped that's really helped to cut down on the number of patients who are doctors you know and and we realize some patients doctor shop um, and I have some you know just incredible stories of that over my 25 years of patient doctor shopping where I've been completely bamboozled so the things like the PDMP report really really helped to, to limit that the the one limitation to the PDMP reports is it's a state of Nevada uh, report. Um, so if patients are getting prescriptions from other states, those may or may not necessarily show up. Um, uh, I've actually had, I now have the ability to get, we can run a California report. The two systems don't talk to each other, um, but there are some ways that providers in Nevada can get those reports from, from other states. So um, what about fentanyl? That, I know that that's a, a word that uh, you see in a lot of articles when you talk about the opioid crisis and the fact that, that you can get it so easily uh, online. Yeah. So fentanyl is an incredibly, incredibly potent narcotic. Um, again, if we, if we sort of rank some of the narcotics, uh, medications like codeine, these are all considered narcotics, but... Um, medications like codeine are sort of at the bottom of the potency. Uh, hydrocodone is a little bit higher. Oxycodone is above that. And then fentanyl is going to be at the highest. Um, and so, yeah, medications like fentanyl are um, incredibly potent. Part of the issue with medications like fentanyl um, and, and what we're hearing gets a little scary is some of the uh, – there are some – illicit drugs that are, are look like prescription drugs. Um, so it looks like a hydrocodone or it looks like an oxycodone. Um, and occasionally these medications are being laced with medication, additional medications like fentanyl. So if someone's used to taking four or five hydrocodone a day and that's controlling their pain when they're getting the illicit drugs, if there's fentanyl in them, all of a sudden they're getting 
a much, much bigger dose of narcotics. And that's where you're seeing these accidental overdoses happening. So the, the issue with fentanyl is, yeah, it's, it's incredibly potent. So, you know, if you take extra codeine, you're not, you're, you may run into some problems. It's going to be, it's possible it'll be less likely. If you take additional fentanyl, that's when people uh, stop breathing and essentially can die from a narcotic overdose. Well, and we certainly hear about it with um, some of the pop stars and singers and people that have taken it and people that have overdosed on it. Right. And, you know, and and I think that's a really difficult, uh, it's a really difficult issue because I, in some ways, I think with some of those celebrities, you have physicians that um, stop thinking of the patient as a, or they think of the patient as a celebrity and they want to make that person happy. Um, They want to, you know, try to control their pain. Um, And in some ways, it can be difficult when you have a celebrity. I can imagine it could be difficult for the physician if you have a celebrity like that because you don't want to say no to the patient. I mean, and and I think in a lot of instances, that's been the difficult issue with narcotics is as a primary care physician, we want to we want our patients to be comfortable. We don't want them to have pain. Um, but at some other level, we also know that these medications are, if, if used incorrect, incorrectly, can lead to overdose. And, and I've had patients that have accidentally overdosed on these medications and died. And um, so I think, again, we're, the, the pendulum's kind of swinging. Um, I think we're doing a better job now of, of trying to work with patients of, okay, you may have some pain, but let's try to keep this under control. Let's try to keep your pain to the level where you can do what you need to do to get through it throughout the day. But we may not be able to completely eliminate that pain. You mentioned a few minutes ago people selling their prescriptions. When when it's a narcotic, don't you have to show an ID? So how how does that work, that someone literally could sell a prescription? Well, I think sometimes what happens is patients will go in, um, uh, and again, this was, I think, worse before we were some of the new regulations that have come in, but patients would go into an urgent care emergency room and make up their pain just to get a prescription. Um, And again, with some of these issues, you know, if someone's having a headache, you know, we might be able to do a a scan of their head to see if they have something serious going on. But, um, you know, or if they have severe back pain, um, the the x-rays, the imaging may not necessarily show, you know, we have to essentially trust our our patients. So, you know, I think, um, you know, we would see patients who would get prescriptions when they didn't have pain and then they would just turn around and sell them on the street um, and that's a different and how does someone fill that prescription well they go to see the physician the physician says okay I, I don't know what's causing your pain but you know you're in severe pain let's get you the no the, I mean the, at the pharmacy how do they fill it don't they have to show an ID no they would still show an ID but as soon as they get that prescription from the pharmacy then they turn around oh, and sell I see. The so street. they sell they don't sell yeah. the script script they sell the pills they sell the got yeah, it. they okay. get the pills and then I'm they sell you. the pills yeah got it yeah. got it and from what I've heard of some of, from some of my law enforcement friends um, you know a single uh, a single narc, uh, pers- you know a single pill of either hydrocodone or oxycodone I've heard up to 20 or $30 per pill on the street. Oh, for goodness sakes. Right, right. Goodness. Well, let's talk for a second about overdose and Narcan. What is Narcan? So Narcan's a medication that we use that essentially uh, 
reverses the effects of narcotics. So if we have someone that's gotten too big of a dose of, uh, of, of a narcotic, um, you can give this medication called Narcan, which essentially sort of quickly reverses um, uh, the effect of that narcotic. Um, and so it's, a, it's an incredibly helpful medication. Um, when we have patients now who are on high, especially if patients on higher doses of narcotics, uh, a lot of times it's being highly, highly, highly recommended to make sure that that person has a dose of Narcan at home. Um, so that if a family member or friend finds them and they're, they're, they've overdosed, um, that you could give that medication quickly and reverse that quickly and reverse the effects of the narcotic quickly. So, you know, we'll see that if someone's, if they've accidentally overdosed, a lot of times they'll stop breathing, they turn blue, you give the Narcan quickly, and that reverses it within, within really a few seconds so the person uh, can come back to life. And how do people get Narcan? Can you... If I had a relative that I knew could have a crisis, how would I get it to be able to have it on hand? We're trying to make it as available as possible. So, you know, uh, a lot of times you can go to the pharmacies, talk to the pharmacist about it. Um, uh, sometimes for insurance reasons, they still may want a prescription. There's, uh, our state is doing a lot to make Narcan more available. Um, and so I, I believe you may be able to even get it. Well, I, I know a lot of times we're still prescribing it. Um, so, yeah, it's a lot of times I would talk to the physician who's writing for the narcotics. And uh, every physician I know, if, I think if they had a patient request for Narcan, um, they're, gonna get, they're going to, yeah, they would be happy to prescribe it. Um, and, again, a lot of the pharmacies are making it more available. It's, it's uh, a lot of the first responders have it on hand now because the narcotic crisis is so, is so big. Well, let's talk for a minute about the pharmaceutical distributors. Uh, I know for the first time that uh, one of the pharmaceutical distributors is facing federal criminal charges over the opioid crisis. Uh, it says that Prosecutors said the former executives at the company Rochester Drug Cooperative ignored red flags and shipped tens of millions of oxycodone pills and fentanyl products to pharmacies they knew were distributing drugs illegally. Their sales soared, as did the compensation of the chief executive. <laughs> it's a whole other can of worms. Follow the money. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, that's essentially the problem with with opioids and, nar and narcotics is they're addictive. And so if you get patients on these medications, it's oftentimes really hard to get them off. And like any addictive uh, substance, um, there are some people that don't, that are bad actors and they don't think about the fact that people can die from these medications or have these devastating effects. They just look at a, hey, you know, we have all these people hooked on it. That's good for our profits. And it's it makes the medical profession look bad. It makes the pharmaceutical profession look bad. But we've we've had some bad actors. So I I, I am happy to see that some of these things are coming to light. Um, you know, uh, there have been a number of physicians that were also again during the heyday of let's be aggressive with narcotics. A lot of physicians were getting compensation from pharmaceutical companies to talk about how aggressive we need to be treating pain. Um, you know, especially with what's happened is with um, some of the higher potency narcotics, uh, some of the longer acting medications, things like uh, Oxycontin, um, uh, 
you know, things, the generic medications, not as big of an issue, but some of the, the newer, more expensive ones, the pharmaceutical companies were really pushing prescribers to treat pain aggressively and use these medications. And, um, and fortunately, we've made a, a 180 turn on that. Well, how does that work now with the pharmaceutical representatives coming to the physician's office with samples? Well, so for opioid medications, we would not get samples of those. Uh, because those are controlled substances, um, those were things that we were never really getting samples of to hand out um, in our offices. Um, but it was more, you know, uh, in some cases, physicians would get um paid to talk on behalf of the pharmaceutical company, um, or they might get, you know, let's, we're going to take you to a continuing medical education program in, you know, Cancun or Maui uh, to talk to, you know, about how great these medications are. Uh, and fortunately, a lot of that the FDA has clamped down on, and a lot of that's going away. So let's talk about solutions and responsibility. What do you see as the responsibility of the physician in the opioid crisis? I'm biased. I'm a primary care physician, so I think it starts with primary care. Um, and I, at some level, we still always have to trust our patients. Um, so if someone comes in, they're talking to us about their pain, we have to uh, assess their pain. We have to try to figure out what's causing their pain. Uh, and I think that we really need to, um, t again, trust the patients. But uh, I think it was Reagan who used to say, trust but verify when it came to the Russians. I think we're having to do a lot more now. Um, again, before we can prescribe narcotics, let's look through old records. Let's run these PDMP reports. Um, let's maybe get some additional testing, uh, imaging, to try to figure out what's causing the pain. So, um you know, and then again, if I think if there are instances, I, I think the other big thing that we're now doing with patients is we're talking to them more about, uh, we'll have them sign contracts saying, okay, I, it, one of the things that was really uh, uh, came to light uh, in the legislative session two years ago is a lot of patients weren't aware of how dangerous these medications are. And, um, you know, as, as healthcare professionals, we're like, oh, yeah, these medications are dangerous. But, again, we would prescribe these and not really tell patients, hey, you know, you might get addicted to this medication. If you take too much of this medication, you might stop breathing and die. And so I think um, we're doing a much, much better f job um, getting informed consent from patients before we put them on these medications, making them aware of both the benefits of the medications and the risks of the medications. And so... Uh, you know, it really starts at that level of, of providers educating the patients about these medications, making them aware, and then I think really monitoring patients much more. Um, you know, in the old days, you know, sometimes you would put a patient on a medication and, you know, uh, they'd come in, again, to have a fairly minor surgery, and, you know, nine months later, you're like, why am I still prescribing this hydrocodone for this patient? So I think we're doing a better job of working with patients to say, okay, boy, it's nine months after your surgery. Why do you still need this medication? And let's kind of reassess things. And what do you think is the responsibility of a hospital? Um, I think a lot of times the hospitals, uh, you know, from my standpoint, a lot of times patients in the hospital, they are having pain. That's why they're in the hospital. Um, and so a lot of times it's going to require coordination between 
the different specialists, and then you know once that patient's discharged, of what's the appropriate uh, uh, pain treatment for that pa- you know pa- uh, for that patient. And what about the family of the patient? What is their responsibility? Um, I think the biggest responsibility with the family is just going to be helping monitor things. Um, and you know another thing that we are really working with people on is. You know, if we give you a prescription for your pain and you don't use those pain medications, and especially if you have adolescents in the house, let's talk about getting those pain medications out of the house. Um, there's some data. Uh, I mean, the amount of experimentation that adolescents do, it's, it's somewhere between 10 and 15% of adolescents experiment with prescription drugs that they find lying around the house. So a lot of times with family members, we'll say, hey, if you got extra pills, let us know and we can dispose of, you know, we can make sure that those are disposed of and not sitting around. Um, because especially in the adolescent level, there's a lot of stories where the kids start with prescription drugs that they find lying around the house and then that turns into a gateway for other things. Sure, you don't use all of the prescription and so you save it for a rainy day. Right. There right, it is. Right. And last but not least, what do you see as the responsibility of the patient? I think the clear thing that patients need to do is to just be as honest and, and open with their with their uh, physicians and their providers about their pain. Um, you know, when these laws first went into effect, uh, we had a lot of patients with legitimate chronic pain that were really, really worried, are they still going to be able to get their pain medications? And, you know, I, the biggest thing that, that I see as a primary care physician if someone comes to me and they say, okay, this is what's going on, this is why my pain's getting worse, I'm going to try to work with them on that. Um, what doesn't fly for, for physicians is if we find something else out or if we find out the patient's been maybe maybe not lying to us but not telling us the truth 100% uh, clearly, that's when we're really going to start worrying about that patient. And that's where you start worrying about the patient is this person starting to go from just being chronically dependent on the medication to abusing them. So I think it just requires a lot of um, communication, patients being honest. Uh, and I think, you know, if most patients are honest about their pain, what they're doing for their pain, I think most most physicians feel sympathetic to their patients. That's why we do this. We want to help our patients. Um, and I think most physicians are going to try to work with them to control their pain. And my last question on this important topic what do you feel is the responsibility of federal and state governments on this important issue? I am I am glad to see that they're realizing that this is a crisis. And obviously, uh, again, at our last legislative session, it was it was pretty uh, eye opening to hear some of the testimonies of, of family members that have lost. Uh, or fa- friends and family members of people that have overdosed from opioids talking about, we didn't know. We didn't know these medications uh, were that addictive. And so I can, I completely understand why state and federal legislators are getting involved. Um, I think the only thing that we also want to take into consideration is we also still have patients with chronic pain that do need these medications. And so I think it's just going to be finding the appropriate balancing act of 
for patient for patients with legitimate pain we want to make sure that they still have access that they're not living in agony that they're not living with pain that could be prevented um, versus balance you know and balancing that versus some of the uh, uh, overdose and, and and addictive uh things that are going on so it, it's hard to find that sometimes legislatively and it's i think it's probably going to take us a while before we get that completely where we want it to be we have been discussing the opioid crisis with Dr. Andy Pasternak from Silver Sage Center for Family Medicine. Thank you, Dr. Pasternak. I appreciate you being on and talking about this very interesting but also vital topic. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For a list of future podcasts, go to accesstohealthcare.org slash podcast. Mm-hmm.